Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Welcome to episode 16 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I hope the end of your school year went well. I hope that you are enjoying a well-deserved and restful summer break. If you're like most teachers that I know, though, you are at least using some of your time to think about how to improve your literacy instruction for the upcoming school year. Maybe it's too soon. Maybe June is, we're not quite there yet, but you will be. And so you're probably thinking about ways that you might make your content more engaging, or you might be integrating standards across content areas, or just how to raise the bar on your reading instruction in general within the classroom. Today's episode is going to help you do just that. Dr. Stacy De La Cruz joins us to talk about integrating literacy instruction with coding for elementary age students. Dr. De La Cruz is an associate professor of early childhood literacy at Kennesaw State University. She investigates K-12 digital literacy, digital equity, multi-literacies, and embedding technology tools into literacy teaching and learning. In this episode, we talk about reasons why teachers might want to incorporate coding with their ELA standards, what coding apps actually look like for elementary age students, and, and spoiler alert, it's not just ones and zeros in HTML on a page. And then finally, we talk about how a teacher can design a lesson that effectively uses coding within the classroom. This episode has a lot of great takeaways for your classroom. Stick around after the show for my two cents on the conversation. Dr. Stacy De La Cruz, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hi, Jake. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are talking about using traditional literacy instruction and infusing it with coding. So we're talking about coding and literacy. How did you become first interested in investigating how learning about coding and how to code for students could support uh, English language arts instruction in the classroom? Well, for over 11 years now, my passion and my research line has been digital literacy. And I'm most interested in bringing in technology tools into the classroom that will support literacy instruction in meaningful ways. And so I, as a professor, I also get the chance to go in and supervise student teachers in the field. So during my visit of Nikki Waters' second grade student teaching classroom, I had, um, I was watching, she was doing writing workshop with them and a little boy came up to me and they were doing report writing. And he was so excited to share his report on, on Scratch Junior. He was showing me the sprites, the scenes, everything. And he was so enthusiastic about it. And I didn't realize then that Scratch Junior is a free app for young children ages five through seven that you can find on the iPad to code with. Um, but he taught me all that through his report. And I asked Nikki, have you been teaching coding in your classroom? And she said, no, we actually do hour of code one hour in December and that's it. She said, this little boy really got into it um, as a hobby at home. And he's taught other students in the classroom about Scratch Junior through his love of writing and through explaining it. And so I left that classroom, it left such an impression on me. And I was thinking, how or is it possible to integrate coding into literacy instruction? 
And so I know there are so many limitations for teachers, especially when I talk about coding and literacy instruction. There's limitations with time, budget, the curriculum that they use. So while I've heard some teachers say, this can't fit into our curriculum, there's just not room for one more thing, the teacher we worked with in this project showed us it can fit into the liter literacy curriculum with no added or wasted instructional time. Let's get some foundation concepts out of the way. So there's two terms I'd like for you to explain. The first one is computational thinking, and the second one is code literacy. And I think that'll help sort of spur the conversation onward from there. So with computational thinking, Wing refers to the thought process involved in expressing solutions as computational steps or algorithms that are carried out by the computer. In connection to literacy then, the algorithmic thinking involves decoding textual or block-based programming commands and sequencing them. And then within code literacy, that expands upon our definition of literacy to include these programming languages. As V discussed, code literacy draws the parallels between reading and writing code and reading and writing text. So as we think of it, as students use block code in particular, they start each block from left to right, just as they would read from left to right. Coding can help students develop thinking and expressing expression skills similar to literacy as they integrate writing through, they can add speech bubbles to make their characters talk. They reread as they um, reread what they've written. They comprehend as they make sure their scene flows from one scene to another. They use expression and fluency also as they record their with their voice and listening skills as they re-listen to their projects. What are the two main arguments for including coding within the classroom? First, coding stories and games fits into the multimodal literacy practice as students strengthen their communication, problem solving, directional language, design, and creativity. So there's a lot of skills embedded there. Secondly, learning to code exposes young children to future career opportunities. So in fact, the I work with closely with Helen Maddox. She's a coach here at KSU, and she actually found this uh, statistic. In 1984, 37% of graduates with a bachelor's degree in computer science were women. So you think, okay, almost 40 years ago, 37% were women. So by now, that must have doubled because of the increase of technology tools and just all the developments that have occurred. In reality, today, one might assume it's much higher, but actually that number has dropped to only 18%. However, by 2026, the US Bureau of Labor and Statistics uh, predicts and projects that computer science research jobs will grow. So it's important that we expose all our students early because we know there's gonna be a demand for these jobs in the future. You mentioned Scratch Junior uh, in the opening that that was the student that um, you know initially sort of got you thinking about it was Scratch Junior. And there's, there's other uh, free coding programs out there that are designed for elementary age kids. So for those listeners that aren't familiar, what do these apps actually look like on the, on the student end? Because it's not just, you know, ones and zeros or HTML that it's, uh, it's a much more engaging experience. So what does coding look like for an elementary age child? Well, we selected Scratch Junior for our project because we looked at a variety of them and they were, it was very user friendly. It has a website with a complete interface guide. So it's like a manual that shows you how you can click on each part of the screen to learn more about each part. I actually think some of the components when you're in Scratch Junior remind me of PowerPoint or even digital storytelling because you can move the slides around and it's very similar. A sprite or a bit is a bitmap 
graphic that is designed to be part of a larger scene. So you'll hear Sprite used in coding a lot. It can be a static image or an animated graphic. Scripts are programmed to make sprites do things. So sprites can be programmed to talk in speech bubbles. And essentially, a sprite is a graphic character on the screen that describes its location and movement and look. When you first go into add a new project into Scratch Jr. in particularly, the Scratch Cat is the character that pops up in the screen. You can click on the plus sign, and they have a lot of pre-programmed characters that you can choose from and add to your scene. If you don't like Scratch Cat or whoever you choose to be in your scene, you can hold down like you would an app to kind of delete it and a little X will pop up and you can delete it off your scene. You can also add a picture from your camera roll as well. Also at the top of the scene, something that's really important for teachers to, to play with is there's a grid view. And so that really helps because it changes your scene into like math grid paper. And if you want your character to move or hop or move around, you can count how many grid spaces you'll want your character to move. You can also pick from a variety of scenes. They've got um, settings that are on the moon, in the ocean, in a park, in a classroom. You can also, um, there's also a bunch of programming space at the bottom. So that's where you do the majority of the programming and you'll find your character. So if Scratch Cat's on the scene, you'll have Scratch Cat. And then you'll, you can pull down or your students can just drag and pull down the programming blocks to program what you want Scratch Cat or that character to do. And in Scratch Junior, these programming blocks are color coded. So the triggering blocks are yellow, motion blocks are blue, looks blocks are purple, sound blocks are green, controls are orange, and the end block is red. So you can always remember you want to start with a yellow triggering block to trigger your program to start. It also has a green flag in it, so green means go. And the red stop one is obviously red means stop. Um, but also you, you can add more programming blocks. There are motion blocks that allow your characters to hop, turn, or reset the character back to their starting point. The look blocks allow the character to hide or show through fading. You can shrink your character so they get really small, grow them so they're really large. You also can allow characters to say something in a speech bubble. You can play a recorded sound using the sound block and a device in your device microphone. And the users can pause the script for an amount of time or repeat the blocks. So it's a very colorful, engaging, uh, you know, it's not just typing HTML, but there's dragging and dropping blocks. And over time, you construct this scene through putting the coding blocks. I've been impressed with Scratch Junior. It scaffolds these skills really quite well of each each lesson just a little bit harder than the next and it's uh, fun challenges and games and they're very very engaging I was I've been impressed with what I've seen from those can you walk us through uh, what an actual lesson development would look like with integrating it with scratch junior to begin with you really want to make it engaging for students so as I mentioned before our technology coach Helen Maddox worked with me on this and she came up with this Simon says game where we printed the free coding block graphics from Scratch Junior and we printed them on cardstock. And so you can hold them up and it'll have, for example, a block and with an arrow to the right and it might have a one underneath. And you say, Simon says this, and you hold the card up and the kids can walk one space to the right. And then you can hold up a card that maybe has some an, uh, a split arrow with a two underneath, meaning hop twice. 
Simon says hop twice. So it's just a hands-on game to get them up, learning the motions. And then you can say, you just programmed your first code of blob and you didn't even know it. <laughs> um, and so Simon says is a great technique. Um, also after that, um, under the teach tab on the Scratch Junior website, there's a variety of activities that give you and your students a quick way to learn how to do all the new things in Scratch Junior. For example, there's one um, activity where it shows the user how to pick a background and characters and use motion blocks to make a car drive across the city. It can show them how to make a sunset or how to make a character dribble a basketball. So you can give students time to practice with those activity cards as well. So then once they figure these basics of, of how to use Scratch Junior, then the teacher can come and actually start integrating it with some literacy content. So how does, how does a teacher go about selecting the standards and a text and how does that process, what, what suggestions we have for a teacher wanting to, to begin that after the students have learned Scratch Junior? Yeah, so I would highly recommend that teachers think about the science standards and social studies standards that are at that given point in time or topics that are covered throughout the year in science or social studies. I mean, we integrated, obviously, in content area literacy. Um, one of our teachers had been teaching pollution and science. It was April around Earth Day, and she aligned it to a standard in science that allowed students to obtain, evaluate, and communicate information about how humans cause changes to the environment. So how human, you know, pollute the environment and cause change. She then also found a reading standard that involves students describing scientific ideas or concepts. So almost any standard about communicating information could go with coding because coding a story or a game is a way that students can communicate what they've learned or know about the topic. The teacher also found many texts on pollution, but she wanted to focus on how humans cause change to the environment through pollution. So she actually found a ReadWorks article um, that, again, I love because it's a free you know, resource out there for K through 12 articles from the various content areas. Excellent. It sounds like, you know, when done right, it can be a very effective use of time because you're hitting language arts standards, you can be hitting science or social studies standards, and then you're also hitting computer science standards. What would the coding project look like for a student? Do they use it to sort of show their, their thinking or to make like a storyline or, or what would it look like? Yeah, so we can't just tell students, okay, now go code the project because there's so many character settings that can be distracting for kids. They would just play on it all day. So we have to have some structure here. And I think it's best to work with graphic organizers on this part to pre-write or to fill in kind of their you know initial ideas so they have kind of a sense of direction of where they're going to go with the project. Um, the teacher we worked with and created created an old perspective versus a new perspective story organizer and had the student jot down notes from the current perspective based on the article the student read versus their new perspective. How are they going to make a change um, based on that article? So while that organized the story he wanted to create, he still had to organize the actual project. Scratch has so many characters and settings, like I mentioned. So um, they did a story planning organizer where the student listed the scene number. You can have up to four scenes. So the student chose, I believe, three scenes. And also he added in where the setting of the scene would be, what the characters would be, and what the issue or focus of the scene is, and the supporting science facts that they would include. So these two organizers alone um, took a few class sessions to finish. You know, writing is a process and they were planning it out. 
then it was actually time to code the project. So as the student started to code with Scratch Junior, he referred to the graphic organizer. And in scene one, it was him, a boy, reading the science article in his room. And his dad walks in and tells his, he tells his dad what he's learned about from reading the article. It's really interesting to see the literacy actually you know, coming to life because he would listen back and he would say, my voice sounds like my dad's voice. And so he wanted to change it with a little bit more intonation and different fluctuation in his voice to make it reflect his dad. So he would re-record it. Um, so that was really neat to see. And then in scene two, he goes to a beach and he frees a seahorse that was stuck in a net um, that someone had polluted. In scene three, he goes with his friends to the beach and they collect plastic bags that are blowing around on the beach and they put them into a garbage bin and they discuss the importance of cleaning up so it doesn't harm the environment. And then of course, at the end of the project or throughout, the teacher wanted to evaluate. So she developed a rubric that she shared with the students ahead of time so they knew what they were to focus on throughout the project. And she included categories such as point of view, audience awareness, point of um, different characters, setting and dialogue, she included a piece for the science content. The project needed to have details and the way the humans affect the environment, including marine life. And um, also she had the presentation, which included having four detailed scenes with different characters, setting and dialogue. And so we found in our research that it's really important to detail in a rubric what you expect the presentation to look like. I mean, on one hand, I really like that it's differentiated and students could do speech bubbles if they don't feel comfortable using their voice. On the other hand, once you watch 25 projects with no voice, it can you know, seem a little redundant. So having that voice option in there is really nice and detailing what you want students to, to do. So how might coding look like for a younger grade student versus an older grade student? What would, how would these projects differ depending on where that needle is at? Yeah, we worked with kindergarten teachers and they've helped develop games for their students. So their students are just dragging and clicking a little bit um, with the coding. As we worked with the second grade, they did a little bit more with the sequencing, even concepts of print, directionality, adding in simple text and speech bubbles to make simple stories. And then in the older grade, students can develop more complex stories and focus more on fluency and um, more details in their story, they can start start to move away from block coding into actual text-based coding as well. Excellent. So let's say there's a, there's a listener out there and they're a teacher and they work really hard and they feel like there's nothing else they can squeeze into their day, but they are interested in what you're talking about. They're interested in, in using coding to help support ELA standards and potentially science and social studies standards too. What advice would you give to that teacher that is wanting to begin, is interested in beginning, but it might be a little bit hesitant still. Go for it. I think almost everyone who hears the code word coding makes it so, so overwhelming and it's hesitant to start. Um, but I can say that we've worked with kindergartners. I have a four and a six-year-old who's worked with coding. They use Osmo coding, you know, codable. They do all the different programs. And if kindergartner can do it, then we can too. That's what I say. Um, there's tons of resources out there that are very easy to follow. Um, like I said, they've used Obby from coding from Osmo. You have to pay for that, but it comes with magnetic coding pieces. 
I even found um, one game now that's in their starter kit that's making letters. So that helps my little four-year-old, you know, with the sticks and the curves and she makes the letter and the character on the screen talks to her and she thinks that's the best thing in the world. Um, so they love it. Also, Hour of Code, hourofcode.com is another great resource with tons of free activities. And, and truthfully, the kids pick it up a lot quicker than the adults <laughs> might too. I mean, it's still it's still pretty straightforward for the adults, but the kids just, uh, it's almost just through osmosis. They get really proficient at it really quick. So this has been a fantastic conversation, Dr. De La Cruz. Uh, how, if folks wanna get in contact with you, how can they do that? Um, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my email is stacydelacruz at gmail.com. My name is S-T-A-C-Y, no E, D-E-L-A-C-R-U-Z at gmail.com. And I'd love to continue on the conversation or talk about other projects. Last question for you. What do you think makes a great teacher? In my opinion, a great teacher is one that knows his or her students and brings with them an abundance mindset. A teacher who meets the child where he or she is academically, socially, and emotionally, and utilizes those assets through instruction to help that student grow. We know there's been many challenges, particularly with the COVID-19 and the remote instruction most recently, but challenges become opportunities for innovative ideas. I've been to many schools uh, throughout the world where resources are scarce, but the teachers have this positive mindset and it really shows me how limitations can push a teacher towards creativity and expression. Dr. De La Cruz, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. De La Cruz for joining us on the podcast today. And, and a great big thanks to all of the all of our guests that have joined us on the show. I have two thoughts that I want to share today about the conversation. The first thought centers around digital literacies. So you and I both know that in the 21st century, to be literate means more than just being able to read printed text off of a page. Our lives are so immersed in the digital that being able to navigate technology effectively is a key skill that our learners will need for future success. The question is, how do we do that within our busy classrooms? Dr. De La Cruz offers one super pragmatic solution and her solution is cross-core integration. The lesson that she walked through and talked to us about today, it included English language arts standards, it included science and or social studies standards, not to mention the integration with coding. The time that we have in the classroom is so precious that we need to do what we can to ensure that those minutes are used wisely and investigating ways to break down the silos of the different core areas and finding ways that we can bridge our instruction across those areas is one way that we could think about that might improve the effectiveness of our instruction within the classroom. My second thought has to do with the construction integration model of comprehension. So clear back in episodes five and six, I discussed about the construction integration model with Dr. D. Ray Reitzel, and it's cropped up now and then throughout the podcast. It's I've been reading a lot about it lately, so it's just sort of towards the forefront of my brain. But I couldn't help notice the similarities between 
what Dr. De La Cruz was presenting and Dr. Reitzel's explanation of the CI model. So if, if you don't remember the construction integration model of comprehension, go back and listen to episodes five and six. They're highly informative, but in a nutshell, the CI model talks about when we comprehend text, it's sort of a two-wave approach, that there's this construction aspect and then there's an integration aspect. In the construction aspect, this involves our brains constructing meaning from the text using like the microstructure, so the small individual meanings of individual words within the context of their short phrases. And then it also involves more macro processes like things like sentence syntax or uh, you know the structure of the overall text. But the result of the construction phase of comprehension is that our brain creates a gist or a text base. It's, it's a representation of what the text is saying, and it sticks fairly close to what the text says. So the way to think about the construction aspect is what the text says. Then there's an integration aspect where we go a little bit deeper, and that shifts from what the text says to what the text means. And so the integration phase, this is where the brain incorporates background knowledge and makes connections and extends the text base from what it originally said into what it means. And what Dr. Reitzel talked about is that to have really good integration, to really have what you've read stick in your brain, he said it generally takes effort and a lot of extra effort. And so I, I, th I think, let's compare what Dr. Reitzel talked about in his podcast to what Dr. De La Cruz is talking about in this one. She talks about students in this in the sample lesson that she walked us through. Those students, they have to first construct an accurate text base, potentially using multiple texts about the topic they're reading. And that could be a science, you know, science standard, a social studies standard. And then once they sort of have the gist or the, the text base of what those texts are saying, then they're expected to synthesize those texts to extend and enrich the topic into the coded storyline. And that would represent the integration phase. And the results of that integration phase are going to depend, yes, in part on their coding ability, but in large part on their comprehension of the text. So when Dr. De La Cruz is talking about integrating coding with literacy, it's not let's just go let the kids play on the computer for a half hour. It's really about when you're using it wisely, it could really be leveraging the construction integration aspects of reading comprehension. So to continue following, you know, Dr. Reitzel's recommendation from that podcast, he also says that uh, the Common Core State Standards are, are based off of this construction integration model of reading that ELA standards one through six deal with more of the construction aspects, the micro and macro structures, and then uh, standards seven through nine deal with more of the integration aspects. So if a teacher is, is wanting to sort of bridge these two episodes and design a high quality unit using this method, I would suggest that maybe using standards one through six through the text processing component of the unit. So that's the reading the text, finding individual meanings of words and the academic, uh, the academic language that's used when constructing the gist and then use standards seven through nine to account for the coding aspect. So that could be comparing or contrasting. It could be the, you know, extending it into the digital literacies to help uh, integrate the comprehension that was, or integrate the text base that was developed during the construction aspect. So that's just me sort of spitballing and thinking about, you know, how different episodes are connecting. And it's just a suggestion, but 
you know, I, I just see that integrating coding following that model, it might be a particularly effective way to support your student comprehension. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's all I've got. Um, I appreciate your continued support of the show. If you enjoyed this episode or another episode, feel free to share it with a colleague. That's mainly how this podcast is, is spreading, is by colleagues going and saying, hey, I listened to this. It was a great episode. You might benefit from it as well. And I would appreciate it if you did that. Uh, the purpose of the podcast is I just want to help bridge literacy research into practice. I want to give teachers a resource where they can be thinking about um, thinking about how they can improve literacy instruction and just give them a high quality resource that they can refer to. So if you enjoy it, please share it with a, share it with a friend. If you would like to reach out to me, you can feel free to do so. Uh, teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com is, is the email that I use for the podcast. I'm also on and off social media depending on, you know, life. But uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Jake D. Downs. And then also there's a Teaching Literacy Podcast Facebook page that I post to on and off. Thank you again. And until next time, since it's summer, we don't have to teach literacy. So until next time, let's go and think about teaching literacy just a little bit better. Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better. <laughs>